0: Let's get our bearings as we begin week five of five here. Just a reminder where we've been. In this letter, we've got the Apostle Peter. Um, That's a a little sculpture of him in a church. Um, He was actually crucified upside down. So that's what that is if you've been kind of looking to go, what's that on the screen? Um, And he's writing to Christians in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, He's focusing on faith under pressure, the hope that they have in the midst of suffering, And we've kind of underscored the whole time this is about God's people as a misunderstood uh, minority living under the rule of a different king. That's going to provoke persecution, which offers a chance to show others the generous love of Jesus. Week one, the great salvation we have in Christ uh, is what Peter leads with. He wants to root them in the gospel and in all that they have received to help them persevere through the all they're gonna uh, undergo. He reminds them we're always safe in the kingdom of God. And nothing, not even death, uh, can derail the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that is ours and will be ours. Week two, we looked at our vocation as God's people, the church, our call to holiness, our identity, being part of uh, God's new family. For those who have been uh, Gentiles, the idea that, hey, you used to fit in, and now you've been brought into this other group where you're now pretty misunderstood. And again, you used to live under the emperor and his ways and the ways of this culture, and now you're under the rule of a different king. And there's parts where you hear the Sermon on the Mount just echoing through uh, the letter and what Peter is instructing them in. 1 Peter 2.9 ties up a lot of those loose ends You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, Week three was the tiptoe through the minefield of culture.
1: (laughs) Uh, uh,
0: Peter hits all these different arenas where their faith would come into conflict with either um, their domestic sphere, their public sphere, maybe their vocation. Um, the culture around them. And what he really focused on was how those conflicts actually might present an opportunity to show others the generous love of Jesus. Uh, He's talking there about submission for the sake of mission, um, and in many ways helping the church understand how do you thrive or how do you endure when you're not in control and you don't love what's happening. Last week, we looked more at how the potential for suffering, persecution, gives us that opportunity to bear witness um, to the way and the work of Jesus. 1 Peter 3.15 was a theme, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do so uh, with gentleness and respect. And then tonight, we'll wrap things up. Uh, we'll start in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, um, and we'll go to the end of the letter. Chapter 5 feels kind of like a half chapter, to be honest. Um, but we'll go to the end of uh, this letter. Um, and what we kind of move from is not just the idea or the potential for suffering and persecution, but in other words, when it comes, here's what to do. And then he's going to wrap up with some concluding uh, instructions just as part of the letter um, he reminds them of the future hope that they have. And what I think is really interesting in this section where uh, they're going to undergo persecution and trial and suffering from those around them, um, instead of having them fight those around them, he's saying, you have a real and more sinister enemy. And he's going to give them uh, a reminder of that and what to do in light of it. So uh, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 the idea of sharing the Messiah's sufferings. Here's what Peter writes. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. The heart of this is probably verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And again, in many places, uh, when he's talking about persecution, he's probably talking about physical bloody suffering. Um, I find this really helpful in actually bridging our context. When you're insulted, when people think you are foolish, when they've said the way you are living your life makes no sense and might even be a waste, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God uh, rests upon you. Um, The problem, and this is Bishop N.T. Rice's, the problem Peter is facing here is Uh, Not just that nobody likes to be persecuted and ill-treated. That's a given. Um, The underlying problem is what must have come as a great surprise to the early Christians. To discover that even though the Messiah had died and been raised from the dead, defeated sin, death, and the evil one, there's still a period of time... And they themselves are living through it in which intense suffering occurs to God's people. Uh, And they're going, wait, hasn't Jesus defeated these things? (laughs) Why is this still happening? And so you have in Peter, you have in Paul and other places where they talk about the expectation um, not that suffering doesn't come upon Christians, but that actually Christians share in and participate in the sufferings of Jesus. That there's a sense in which that's more normative at times uh, for our life in the Lord. Uh, There's a, a, a bishop in France in the fourth century. He says the trials and temptations which come to Christians are nothing new. The prophets of the Old Testament suffered exactly the same things. All such trials find their meaning and culmination in the cross of Christ. The servant is not greater than his master. If Christ suffered, how can we expect to get off any more lightly? Um, And throughout, you have this idea, he says, hey, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Um, And I think what's probably the most frustrating is that for many of us, we might not have been given a full picture that that's part of the equation when we came to faith. (laughs) Um, That wasn't on the table. We didn't know we were signing up for suffering (laughs) Um, no one told us no for real take up your cross and follow him <laughs> you're gonna die to yourself um, i i heard over the weekend um, there was a popular preacher was asked about an elevator pitch for christianity you know what an elevator pitch is like if you've got like 30 seconds how are you going to sell people on this um, and this person said that they would not appeal to the death of jesus it would not appeal to the resurrection. He said, I don't have time in 30 seconds to go over that. But he said, this would be his elevator pitch. Um, that following Jesus helps him to live a better life, and he's better at living life because he follows Jesus. And my thought was, and I didn't hear the whole context, I don't want to overly uh, go in on this person. But if you signed up for that
1: <laughs>
0: and persecution came, how confused would you be? You say, someone has sold me a bill of goods. Um, if this is just supposed to make this life better and me better at living this life. Now, he's not wrong. It does make this life better, <laughs> and it does make us better at truly living. Because the way of Jesus is good and beautiful. And following Jesus, even if it's through persecution and death, is better than not being with Jesus. But that's not what he's unpacking. That wouldn't be the expectation. Peter's saying, hey, uh, (laughs) this is the small print. Do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. Um, And the way he actually tells this whole passage is really interesting about the fiery trial, the test. That's what this is. This is a, what is this, a smelting something? I don't know. Anyone know how to do metalworking? A little bit. Bill's got it. So this is like a forge, and they're they're smelting something. It looks like that's like the ring they're going to give to Frodo. (laughs) Let's be honest. (laughs) But um, you have this idea all through the scriptures of a fiery trial. And uh, I was studying this, and it said that this passage of a fiery trial um, is not something Peter comes up with, and it's not something that the New Testament comes up with. It's a clear callback to a prophet, Zechariah. And in Zechariah 13, uh, there's a place where Jesus will quote Zechariah 13. Um, He quotes it on his final night with his friends. Well, we will celebrate for Maundy Thursday, the night he was betrayed. And listen to this from Zechariah 13. I'm just gonna read from my notes. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones and the whole land declares the Lord. Two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. When Peter says this is a fiery trial, he's, he's calling that sequence back to mind. Just like Jesus said, if they strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. He goes, and then the sheep will be put through fiery trial Not to ruin them, but to refine them, to test them, to improve what's going on. And it's going to be such that they will call upon the Lord. He will answer them and they will know that they're his people. And there's going to be a clarifying, confirming good that comes out of this evil for the people of God. So Bishop N.T. write again, the effect of the shepherd's death is not in question. Jesus has rescued his people from the power of evil, but they are still to expect this time of fiery trial. It isn't something strange. It's what the scriptures had foretold. It's not pleasant to be persecuted, but if when it happens, you can see it as a road sign telling you that you're on the right path, that might make all the difference. In other words, this is going according to plan. This isn't occurring because you're doing something wrong. In fact, contrary, it's happening because of all that you're doing right. That's how Peter is looking to encourage them. And we see that once again that the Christian life is cross-shaped, the death and resurrection of our Lord. Um, Their lives will be tied into the pattern of Jesus' life, which should shape their fundamental attitude as they encounter persecution. And then, uh, like Paul, this is from Scott McKnight, I love this. Peter sees the sufferings of ordinary believers as a special bond with their Lord. Um, And I will say that, you know, in, gosh, almost 20 years now of pastoral ministry, um, I've seen some horrendous things (laughs) just in terms of suffering and evil, sickness and death. I've seen very little persecution for the sake of being a Christian, but I've seen some... Um, horrendous things, things that would make people have real questions. Um, I've generally not known the people actually going through the hard things to be having the same questions as those looking on. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: The people going through the hard things are clinging to the Lord as a lifeline. And they will usually say, I don't know how I got through that. The Lord drew near Sometimes you know it in the moment. Sometimes you know it in hindsight. Um, But there's a, a mystery of the bond Jesus has with us when we are in the midst of suffering and hardship. And again, I think if we know that that can be the case, then when suffering and hardship comes, then we go, Lord, where can I feel you near? Where can I be upheld by you? Where can I bond with you in this instead of where are you? Why is this happening? And it's not to invalidate some of those questions. There's there's a time and a place for those questions. But it's reminding them to look to the presence of the Lord uh, in the midst of what they're going through. You might remember Philippians 3. uh, Paul wrote, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish just say the Greek word for rubbish can only be said in a youth group and they will giggle (laughs) because it is one of those four letter words (laughs) Um, and he's saying the things of this world by comparison are dumb they are excrement they are rubbish compared to gaining Christ and being found in him Um, Paul says that I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, this is a major theme in the entire New Testament and in the entire early church, as this is normal Christianity for them. Um, And so you can imagine if you had been raised where if you were a person who had a Jewish background, this was even pretty familiar. Um, One scholar points out that if you were Jewish, uh, you were used to being a minority. Uh, You, for generations, have been a a foreign, culturally distinct minority. Whether you were dispersed uh, amongst the Mediterranean, whether you had been persecuted under someone like Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, you had developed a theology of suffering and martyrdom. Um, if you read any of the Apocrypha books, kind of in between the Old and New Testament, First and Second Maccabees, these books, you see a robust idea that the sufferings of God's people in terms of righteousness um, is meritorious, that it's good, that it's beautiful. They, they came to expect suffering and maybe even uh, martyrdom. They had a category for it. And so before their conversion, if you were a Jewish follower who then came to Jesus, you're like, oh yeah, we're used to being on the outs. We're used to suffering. We're used to martyrdom. After all, look at Jesus. Now he fulfilled that. But if you were um, a good Greco-Roman citizen in Asia Minor, you're like, wait a minute. I'm used to fitting in. You have just called me to a completely different way of life that has made me weird and has made me stand out. And it's put me at odds, maybe with my spouse or a parent. Put me at odds with my boss. Put me at odds with the city. And people aren't going to like that. And Peter's saying, yeah, and that's why you've got to have this idea that you're part of this holy nation, the royal priesthood. He's inviting these folks who were used to getting along just well in their culture um, to realize they've now been set apart, made different, and that's going to produce conflict. All right, let's keep going. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. This is interesting. He kind of turns to talk to some of the church leaders. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Let me just be real clear. This is Peter being so generous. (laughs) Uh, The Apostle Peter. Like, we could go next door and ask what they think of the Apostle Peter. And if he is on the same par with all these local elders in Turkey. (laughs) Fellow elders, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Interesting. Um, we don't have time to do a full kind of unpacking of church leadership in the New Testament Um, suffice it to say that God gives leaders to the church imperfect leaders uh, to the church as a gift Um, and the idea is that they're supposed to be under shepherds under the great shepherd Jesus to care for and to lead to provide Um, Jesus in his ministry talks about not being a hired hand Of being a shepherd and you kind of get this sense here like hey do this willingly not for selfish gain not as a hired hand Um, and I do think that's where you know uh, in this instance you only have like a couple decades of church leadership Um, we now have centuries and centuries of church leadership and all the good leaders and all the bad leaders that that means Um, in our current reality we can go on social media and see all of the good and all of the bad that leaders have done. We can look at um, those who have violated almost everything that Peter says. Um, And I think for me, that doesn't mean, man, we don't want to have church leaders. I think it just makes those failings all the more grievous. Um, As when they come up short, they show us what the ideal is in Jesus. And again, no leader is going to be perfect. And even where he's calling for uh, and reminding us that the leaders are under the Lord. Um, no one's a free agent in this. No one's kind of a king of their own domain type thing. He says, so don't be domineering. Um, do it eagerly, not for shameful gain. Be examples and do all this under Jesus. Um, but what I think is interesting here is to wonder okay, he's pretty clear. Um, church leader, lead. Um, a member in the church, follow. He's, he's kind of, you know, he doesn't qualify that. And I will say that seems even more important in times of real crises. Um, there's not necessarily time <laughs> to always have a full debate or always get all of the information. You can imagine if this congregation is about to undergo bloody persecution, He's got to establish some protocols for, hey, if they say do this, we do this. If they say do that, we do that. Uh, Because they're going to lead us through this difficult, uh, challenging season. Um, And what he tells the, you know, verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, he doesn't say your church leaders are always going to be right. (laughs) They're always going to have the perfect thing for you to do. He says, no, Uh, be subject to them. But, yeah, with humility, it's not unquestioned. It's not unfeigned loyalty, but, yeah, be subject to them for the most part. Um, Scott McKnight has written a book on 1 Peter. He's also written a book called A Church Called Tove about dysfunctional spiritual systems of leadership that are really unhealthy. Here's his commentary on this passage. He says, elders, church leaders of any kind, are to exercise leadership. Congregations are to follow their lead. But ours is not a culture that easily adjusts itself to such an idea. Because we tend to be a society of mavericks and do-it-yourselfers. Consequently, not only does the term submission sound foreign, but even the idea of actually being led by a spiritual advisor or a pastor is hard for many to comprehend. And it's harder given the terrible job many church leaders have done of leading. (laughs) He says what we need is able leadership. And when able leadership is present, not perfect, but able, following the lead of those church leaders is healthy and effective. He writes, Even while affirming the importance of leadership and authority on the part of the church leaders, the elders, we must not forget there will be differences of opinions on matters, some small, some significant. And when done, in a spirit of humility and concern, disagreements can be minimized and the harmful effects of division reduced. He's talking about a peaceable community that's following what and doing the work that God has given them to do. And then he's over and over, what's he tell both of them to have in common? Humility. And that makes sense, right? If you're only focused on dynamics of who's in control and who's following, and I'm in control and you have to follow, that can get really unhealthy. If both are seeking humility, um, you have the potential for a really fruitful Uh, thing to occur and so he has humility over and over again to be humble to have humility Um, this is might have been to one of our ordinations this is from Joe's ordination uh, in November and this is him Ah, behold the man (laughs) Uh, this is Joe Uh, flat out um, prostrate is how you pronounce that. Be careful, uh, <laughs> older gentlemen among us. Um, but it's a posture of humility, um, and there's actually a prayer over this. Hey, let the world know that the things which are cast down are being raised up. And there's even that in this passage. If you humble yourself, that's how you can be exalted. Um, what I want to mention here is this is completely countercultural. humility, meekness, any of these associated virtues that if you're raised in church, you're like, that's a good virtue, that's a good thing. Um, Essentially, this is invented by those following uh, the church and reading the scriptures. Um, It's just, I think it's hard for us to comprehend that until this strange movement of Jesus Nobody outside a really narrow strand within the Jewish tradition regarded humility as a virtue or a good. In fact, the opposite. You were supposed to uh, be proud and posture and yell and demand your own and force and use power and assert your will. That was the way of the world and it wasn't seen as bad. It was seen as the way of strength and goodness and flourishing. And then Jesus comes with this idea of humility. And it enters thought, like intellectual thought as a concept because Jesus had happened. And Jesus is telling uh, us to be humble. Peter is telling them to be humble. Um, I also heard recently someone said we should stop using the idea of shepherds for church leaders, because no one knows what a shepherd is, which I get, but maybe we could educate. <laughs> um, he's, he's worried that there's more danger of it being misunderstood as just, you know, Jesus and Birkenstocks with lambs, um, which by the way, I used to use that. No one knew what Birkenstocks were. And, and by golly, they've come back. Way to go, Birkenstocks. But he's telling them to, to care for their flock, To lead them, to feed them. Question Why do you think this is such a big deal for Peter? Because he was a maverick. Partly because he was a maverick? Yeah, you wouldn't go, oh, the guy who cut the soldier's ear off. He's going to be our gentle, caring shepherd. And again, we might overdo the nurturing image of shepherd. I think uh, Deacon Joanne, when she preached, reminded us that sometimes shepherds have to get a little rough with the sheep, um, if you've seen that. Any other thoughts on why Peter?
1: Well, it kind of falls on what he said, but, you know, Peter was maverick, and he did all these things, and every time he did it, he was
0: humbled. You know, he was like, okay, you, you messed up. <laughs> yeah, he, he might have learned humility the hard way. Um no. Yeah, Emma. Well,
1: Jesus told him to watch
0: the sheep quite a few times. Quite a few times, <laughs> three times. Yeah, you remember Peter denies the Lord three times, and then Jesus restores him on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. And what's he say? Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know that I do. <laughs> Feed my sheep. I think even just that moment of recommissioning and reconciliation and forgiveness just put him on that different path. Um, He's like, Jesus told me this three times. He told me I was a rock once. He told me I was a shepherd three times. We're gonna focus on the shepherd part here. Um, All right, this is a wonderful little woodcut of uh, Peter being restored by the Sea of Galilee. Um, this, by the way, is from the catacombs of Rome. This is Jesus, the good shepherd. Um, so again, we're going back to that image because it's saturated throughout the New Testament. It's in the ministry of Jesus, and it's all over the prophets where God will shepherd his people. It's all over King David. Um, this is the dominant imagery for this. All right, let's keep talking a little bit here. Um, Oh, this next part is not as cool. (laughs) Nope. Um, mean, we go from verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, which I have seen cross-stitched on
1: pillows.
0: (laughs) It didn't say submit to your leaders and then cast all, no, it was just on a little pillow, Mm -hmm. on its own, looking lovely, totally out of context because then look at the next part. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If I ever see a pillow with all that, <laughs> or if you ever see one, do purchase it for me. <laughs> Cast all your anxieties on him. Watch out for the devil. <laughs> Come on now. What's happening here? All right. Indulge me with the illustration. It's a little gnarly here. Ooh. This is, so some of you guys know that George is soon to move to Houston, and so we need to teach George about mosquitoes. No mosquitoes sorry. Um, are they
1: really
0: sorry. Are they bigger in Houston? Oh yeah, is- Houston is wet, hot, humid. Everything, everything. Yeah, mosquitoes are bigger the whole deal. Um, this is a mosquito, this is a um, mosquito who uh, either is just a stock photo, or nefariously giving people malaria. One of the two. (laughs) Um, We're not sure. But um, if if you read back in the history of medicine, one of the huge advances, honestly, uh, was when researchers figured out how malaria was spread. People had been getting malaria, people had been dying of malaria, and they were doing everything they could to treat the symptoms, treat the disease. No No one knew how this disease was spread, and then one day they figured out, oh, it's being spread by mosquitoes. Nasty mosquitoes. Well, once they figured that out, then they knew who the real enemy was, and new steps could be taken. So, in tropical environments, uh, they drained swamps, for example, um, not in Gainesville, Florida, but you know, <laughs> other places. They drained swamps where mosquitoes were breeding. Um, they invented mosquito nets, right, that you would put over you when you sleep. Um, And uh, over time, malaria is still, you know, it's, it's around and it's unpleasant, but it's not this huge widespread problem. Because they figured out, oh, we know what's causing this. We know what's spreading this thing. Like, we can take some measures. We can drain some swamps, we can put some mosquito nets out. Now, for most of this letter, Uh, Peter's been speaking, and and kind of the shadow behind all this is persecution is coming. Right? And I think you'd be very tempted to again look out and go, man, the real enemy here is the people that are going to be persecuting us. That seems pretty natural. Like, if Robert punched me in the face, I'd be like, Robert punched me in the face. (laughs) You see, see, it's just a call huh? (laughs) (laughs) The beard, yeah. Um, no and they've been aware that they probably have persecution coming from the surrounding non-christian culture some of that would have been really unofficial people sneering at them criticizing them ostracizing them maybe occasional violence some will get really official being dragged before courts being thrown into the gladiator pits being killed eventually and how easy this is bishop Venti right how easy it will have been as it still is for the christians to demonize their visible human opponents and to regard them as the real source of the problem. Now he's saying, the ones that are gonna do the persecuting, there's something more malevolent behind them that is your real enemy. And if you don't know it's there, you're gonna attack the wrong thing and defend against the wrong thing. And what that enemy is, he says, you have an adversary, the devil. I mean, think about it. I'm just, I always find it so wild to wrap my head around the story of Paul. Because Paul led persecution against the church in Jerusalem and around Israel, right? He would have done what they're trying to avoid. And in the course of that, I think the martyr Stephen bears witness to Paul when he's stoned to death. And eventually Paul encounters the risen Jesus, is converted, and writes most the Bible, the New Testament. Peter's imagination for his enemy, his hope for his enemy, his hope for the one persecuting him, is not to defeat them or to fight back but that somehow in the mystery and kindness of God, they would come to know him and become their brother. That's baffling to me. Like, I think I've heard, love your enemies, and I just think, ah, I grit my teeth and don't, you know, wish bad things on them. What does it mean that you would pray that those who ostracize you, make fun of you, think you are ridiculous, would hit you, would kill you if they could? Lord, I long for the day when we are in the family of God together and you forgive these things they've done. And you have this idea that that as as much as their evil is very real, there is something behind that that is the real and pressing evil. We hear this throughout uh, the New Testament. And I think the reason Paul talks about it, the reason Peter talks about it, is because if we don't get that there's a real enemy behind these things, we will fight those people whom God loves and could be our future brother and sister in the Lord. And our response to their hostility could be the very process that brings that about. There is a roaring lion sowing discord, (laughs) sowing evil. Um, raging as a defeated enemy before he is finally done away with. And so Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And yes, that is a stock image of evil lion. (laughs) If you try to get stock photos of an evil lion, do you know what nine out of ten of them are? Scar. Scar! Yes. 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 Um, and this, of course, is the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Um, and uh, it was actually—it's—it's it's a terrifying image. This idea of a, a prowling, roaring lion. Um, when it says your adversary uh, is seeking someone to devour, that is a violent, visceral word. That is swallow in one gulp. Um, that would be the hope in this time of persecution. Let's swallow up this entire movement and end it, if we can. Um, and Bishop Penty Wright, who, again, I find really helpful here, just says that this alerts us to the serious nature of the Christian life. Um, too many Christians will soft-pedal the idea of actual spiritual warfare. Um, the idea that there is an evil one, and there are minions of the evil one. Um, And C.S. Lewis, you might know, he wrote this book, The Screwtape Letters. It's a senior demon writing to his younger demon. Here's how to affect the charge under your care. Um, And it's very sinister. It's very interesting. Um, And it just, I think, helps to alert us to the real danger we could be in. Um, I mean, most people, when you think of the devil... What do you have? Little little dude from like a Geico ad, right? Harmless, comical, red horns, little tail. Um, I, I think that I think that that's a wonderful trick that the evil one loves. Is yeah, turn me into a cartoon and dismiss me. Um, I think equally. Um, and this is again leaning into kind of C.S. Lewis. Um, others can be so fascinated with this that they think of little else. And they suppose every ordinary problem in life or difficult in someone's personality or whatever, it's due to uh, direct devilish intervention. This is the demon under every rock crowd, I like to say. Lewis says we need a uh, middle way between this. We can't ignore this side of things, like it doesn't exist. We can't be overly infatuated with it um, or overly in fear of it. Um, and Ephesians 6.12 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places I was talking with a friend today he's an Anglican priest in a different city and uh, their church has probably, I think he said gone from about, I don't know 285 in attendance to about 600 since the fall um which, I mean, I've had a teenager and watched them grow out of pants. Like, that's, that's crazy growth, right? <laughs> you're, you're splitting the seams on things. Um, they've had lots of uh, baptisms, lots of adults coming to faith, lots of new babies in the church that they're bringing for baptism. Um, and then they've also had a lot of death. Um, to start with, one of their pastors died. Um, young dad, cancer. Uh, Since that time, he said they have had six funerals, five of people under the age of 40. Um, And they just had an incident this weekend, um, a suicide in their parish. Um, It was really bad, like public note posted, um, calling the church out, like just someone who is loved by Jesus and was deeply unwell. Um, And so I was talking with him today, too, on the phone. It's like, yeah, we just kind of expect it. <laughs> like when we're making this kind of frontline progress for the gospel, like things are going to pop up. And again, it's not like you're overly, you know, you don't, you don't not do the Lord's work because you're afraid of that. Um, you're not overly concerned, but you're just kind of aware, like, man, if you're on the front line, stuff's going to happen. Um, when we moved here to plant the church, our entire family got pneumonia. And there was a Presbyterian friend. He moved here to plant a church, and his whole family got pneumonia. And another guy, and his whole family got pneumonia. And one of our elder statesmen in town, who is uh, by no means a charismatic, he is a Presbyterian pastor, was like, that's spiritual warfare. We're going to pray for you. Um, And it's just a reminder, especially when you're doing the work of the kingdom, you're going to see difficulty. You're going to see things pop up. Peter says, make sure that difficulty is because you're doing good, not because you're doing evil. (laughs) Um, That's what he's wanting to make sure we see here. Um, Any questions on that before? Take that a little bit further for us, Daniel. Thanks, Joe. We were Mm tiptoeing right. This is the opposite of of a softball, but I know you can handle it. (laughs) <laughs> I was talking with a friend earlier this week who's a secular person who used to be very involved in the church and turned completely against
1: it he said I get so sick of Christians talking about oh we're persecuted
0: mm-hmm. oh if we're not careful the the, uh, the culture's going to turn against us and we've got to.'" it up and I hear that from him but I also said well man depending on where you are even in the U.S. sure and then a couple of things in the news this week. Mm-hmm. So what would Peter advise us to do in a post-Christendom culture that's saturated with social media
1: mm-hmm. about helping our other Christians toe this line you're talking about? And
0: that's why I'm saying you're I mean getting yeah, right yeah. to this. Yep. Yeah. It's like some of our friends on some sides are like hysterical about persecution. Sure. Others are like, <laughs> Christians own culture. Yeah, I, I, maybe um, that's helpful. If I think of kind of some railroad tracks for this, how you would stay on course, you've got up in uh, 1 Peter 4, um, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. Here, verse 9, resist him, that is the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so I think there's this awareness. um, I think, one, it's to not underestimate the schemes of the evil one and how insidious they can be. And probably to also have a little more of a pain tolerance. Um, Again, I think one of the real challenges is if we're used to not being in this position of being a misunderstood group who's not in charge because that's who he's writing to and that's who increasingly whether we like it or not is reality mm-hmm. in many cases um, I think the question is you can fight that and you can do a kicking kick and screaming um, and I think Peter would say you're probably not going to accomplish a whole lot You know, it's like when Peter cuts the dude's ear off yeah. that's that approach You've come, I don't like, I'm going to cut your ear off. Jesus says, hey, no, 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 we don't pick up the sword. It's a cross-shaped ethic. that would say, our hope for you is not that we beat you or you agree with us, but that you are part of the family of God. And sometimes that means saying, hey, and we think you are dead wrong about X, Y, or Z. Yeah, we can bear witness to the truth in a way that is um, respectful and clear and honest. Um but I do think we need to also realize in many cases um, you know uh, Tex is in the back there with his baseball stuff on Um, and I think in many cases what's happening is maybe there's a fastball that comes across the mound and we miss it and then we get ready for the next fastball and it's just a little off-speed pitch just to trap us Um, like there are some real things that are hard shit but half the time, we squawk about things that aren't real persecution. Um, and I think that's just part of, I mean, I really, the, the devil is called the deceitful one. Um, he likes deception. He likes lies. He really likes if he can get other, I mean, if he can get us, like, tripping over each other, like, that's the best of all worlds. And so in many cases, I think uh, we will front load things. And we didn't hit this much, but if I want to go back to verse 17 of chapter 4, real quick on this. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. I think part of what that's telling us is um if we're in a position where we're not in charge, and frankly, we don't do very well when we are in charge. <laughs> um, in that case we should be less concerned that non-christians are acting like non-christians and not surprised by it at all and more concerned with how do we faithfully follow jesus um and in fact i think peter would say if you if we don't have that kind of internal integrity and unity of following jesus together well then we've got no shot when if and when real persecution comes Um, so I, I think that's that's part of it. Is um, I think it can be very difficult to discern what situation are we in,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, who are we talking with, and I think if you, I think our, probably our you know college students, grad students, some of our youth, some of them are probably much more fluid at this than even we are <coughs> because they're used to navigating difference and hostility. Um, even now, and I'm I'm. I'm pretty old. I'm early 40s. And some of my bishops will be... <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, we'll be we talking
0: about... I think I like, We'll be talking about a cultural issue. And they're like, can you believe I've never heard of anyone thinking like this? And I'm like, bro, my peers are just voting. What are you talking about? I've been living with this since the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, there, there's been a bubble over some of this. But, like, unfortunately, now there's really, like, that bubble seems to have burst. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's true is when it bursts, it bursts ugly. Um, and it, it's it's not pleasant. Um, and so I think particularly something like spiritual warfare, I think the reason there's so much of what can be very strange and unhelpful is just to distract us from it being out there at all. Um And the way we're supposed to respond to that is to resist temptation, love one another, pray for one another. Um, And I think Peter would say, realize, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. You know, like if things are going well and you're seeing fruit for the kingdom, do not be surprised when bugs try to come amongst the fruit. Um, All right, Uh, real quick, we're actually about out of time but pretty close to done which is good I just want to show you this real quick the instructions that Peter gives most would say these are probably just some wisdom of the church I just want to show you this real quick if you look at 1 Peter 5 God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he might exalt you your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour resist him That sounds really similar to James. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Uh, Submit yourselves then to God. A little bit later, uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. You see how those kind of go together. It seems like in the church, the early church, they they knew this was going on. And there was some agreed upon wisdom of what to do. And so one is to be humble. Two, know you have an adversary. Resist him. Um, I've heard people say, you know, Satan is doing this and that and the other to me. And I'm like, you're probably not that big a deal. (laughs) (laughs) I've read the screw tape letters. That's some junior flunky. Um, you know, I've heard people like verbally like, you know, if you're the, I'm like, woo, no, this is real and this can be some bad news. Um, I think we want to walk that Anglican middle way here. Um, aware this stuff happens, but trusting ultimately in the Lord's goodness um, to carry us through and not that it will even always end the way we want. What does he say over and over here? Let's go to this next part real quick. After he finishes this section, verse 10: After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's like whether you do well or do poorly in this, you're the Lord's, and your future is secure. And then he has just a few kind of final greetings. Um, it says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Uh, most would say Sylvanus is probably Silas. Just a, you know, <clears throat> a way to nickname, shorten name. He probably would have carried this letter. Um, might even have helped write or edit it. Verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Babylon is Rome almost always (laughs) in the New Testament. Um, You don't want poor Silas to get found with a letter saying, we hate Rome. (laughs) So you use the cipher, Babylon. That's what, again, you do when you're not used to being in charge. You have some little ciphers, little code, things you do. Um, So does Mark, my son. You guys know Mark from the rest of the New Testament. Uh, greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you uh, who are in Christ. So he leaves them with after this entire letter of fiery trial is coming and will come, and how will you endure and be refined through it? Peace. Your ultimate hope is the shalom of God. Um, and again, this is not an ordinary peace or even cessation of hostilities. This is the kind of peace and wholeness and shalom that Christ leaves his disciples. When he went to the cross, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. And we're meant to pursue peace, peace for one another. It says, and thereby we won't be fighting the people we shouldn't fight.